0: Good evening, everyone. Thanks to Ralph and, and to Karen. One of the things that I love about this church is just the variety of people who, uh, who lead the different services on a week-to-week basis. And, and I realize that they invest so much into, into this time. And so, uh, Ralph and Karen, thank you. I really do appreciate the way you've led us this evening. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started our new series in Judges which is the seventh book of the Old Testament. And it's one that for many falls into the category of embarrassing scripture. Uh, This is, as we said a couple of weeks ago, an uncomfortable book. Uh, But although its contents have the potential to embarrass our enlightened sensibilities, we also believe that all scripture is God-breathed. That all scripture is useful and inspired and therefore we simply can't and we must not ignore the difficult bits even though we may be tempted to do so. And remember something that we said uh, two weeks ago by way of introduction was that if the lessons in in Old Testament uh, history are neglected then we run the risk of repeating its mistakes. And we set the scene uh, two weeks ago that Joshua had led the Israelites into the promised land. And the territory was divided up between the 12 tribes and they were then responsible for clearing out the remaining Canaanites from all their allocated areas. And Joshua dies, age 110, and initially it all goes relatively well. The Israelites do what they were supposed to do, but then... Partial obedience kicks in. And before very long, the wheels start to come off at every level. And in chapter 2, you read this rather depressing commentary. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal. And the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. They were in great distress. And what you find is this really sad, sorry state of affairs. But thankfully, it doesn't end there because in verse 16 of chapter 2, it then says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So, though Joshua had Gone, God definitely hadn't. Now, that cycle of four steps occurs time and time again in this book. So what you have is step one, where the Israelites mess up. Step two, their enemies oppress them. Step three, they cry out to God in their distress. Step four, God raises up. A judge. And that, in a sense, is just a way of setting the context for this. But tonight I sort of want us to begin to get down to the nitty gritty in more ways than one. Because tonight we're going to meet the first of the twelve judges. We're going to look at three of them. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Judges chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be Bibles in the pews. Uh, Page 244. And just as you're looking that up, uh, many of you will know that the term or the title judge is a little misleading or confusing to us in our context. We're not talking about a magistrate, uh, which may immediately come to mind whenever we hear the word judge. But the primary emphasis is on a deliverer or a hero or a savior. So let's let's read from verse seven about Othniel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of a king with a double-barreled name, who was the king of another place, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them? The spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave the king of Aram into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him, and so the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And I'm sure, as you just were even listening to or looking across those those verses, you'll have picked up on the cycle. Step one is there in verse 7. The Israelites mess up. But I want us to actually look at what that looked like. What does it actually mean to do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Well, in a sense, there are three things involved. And this mindset and these choices, they're not restricted to a group of people 1,600 years before Christ. This is profoundly relevant. So the first thing they did, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And those six words, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or how many words it is, are so important because irrespective of the people's take on morality, irrespective of what they thought was acceptable behavior, it was God's perspective that mattered. And it's God's perspective that always matters. And we find ourselves living in a world that increasingly wants to define or redefine right from wrong. We live in a world that wants to blur the edges between the two. And so everyone today has a different understanding, a different interpretation of what is right and what is wrong. But at the end of the day, it's not about, and it never can be about, what we or others around us might think about it. The critical issue is that God determines god defines the values and standards in our world and so what it says is these people did evil not just in their eyes or in our eyes but most importantly they did evil in the eyes of the lord secondly notice says they forgot god the true god their god Again, if you look back at verse 10, chapter 2, it actually says that a generation had grown up that neither knew the Lord nor knew what the Lord had done for Israel. You see, whenever we don't pass on our story, whenever we don't pass on the story, God's story, the big story, then people quickly forget. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln set a national day of humiliation, fasting and prayer. And it was during the American Civil War. And as he spoke into this context, he said these insightful words. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have grown in numbers. We have grown in wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. And he called the nation to confession and repentance. And three and a half thousand years ago, at the time of the judges, people forgot God. 150 years ago, people forgot God. What is the situation today? Are we as a nation in danger of forgetting not only who God is, but what God has done? Are we passing on what God has done to the generation that comes behind us because that is our responsibility and finally it says they served other gods we all know that we've been created to worship it's built in in a sense to our dna but when it's not god that we worship when it's not the true god the only god then we will end up serving other gods that's just the way it works it's inevitable and in our context, it may not be Baals or Asher's, but we'll definitely find something else. Or we'll find some other things to love and to sell our souls to. The Israelites mess up, and here's how they messed up. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they forgot who God was, and they served other gods. The inevitable outcome of that. Is that God's anger kicks in. Look at verse 8. But what we must realise, and this is maybe a strange phrase, that God's anger is good, bad news. To say it again, God's anger is good, bad news. But what do I mean by that? You see, God was in relationship. He was in covenant relationship with these people. He is, as it says in verse 7, he is their god he's not just god he's actually their god they are in relationship with him and therefore he cannot just sit back he cannot just watch as they become comfortable and cozy and lost in their rebellion god is a jealous god we made this clear i hope two weeks ago he loves us too much to do nothing He loves us far too much to just turn a blind eye or walk away from us. And so the fact that God gets angry whenever Israel messes up is good, bad news. One commentator has put it like this. God's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable. In sin. And in a very strange way, God's anger is a sign of hope. And that's maybe a thought to just take away and reflect on. God's anger is a sign of hope. And for the next eight years, it says that Israel were subject to this foreign king. And clearly life's miserable during those eight years. And so they cry out to the Lord in distress. Now, some people see this as repentance. But is it? Is it repentance? As I've I've looked at this during the week and tried to read round it, it seems far more likely that this is simply a cry for help out of deep distress. This is just a group of people who have become so oppressed so uncomfortable they cannot bear the circumstances in which they find themselves and it's not that these people are penitent it's not that they are sorry for what they have done for their sin for their poor choices it was more of a case they're just completely miserable they're fed up and so they cry out to god and therefore what we read next in the second half of verse 9 is all the more poignant Because it says, when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. And what I want to suggest we find here is a prime example of and an explicit confirmation of the sheer grace of God. Here is a group of people receiving what they did not deserve. God hears. He hears their cry. And he responds. That is sheer grace. That's outrageous grace. That is life-giving and life-renewing grace. And sometimes when the people of God mess up, his heart breaks. And sometimes all we can do and all we do is cry out to him in the midst of our mess. Sometimes that mess is self-inflicted. And the incredible thing about the God that we serve, the God that we've been worshiping this evening, is that He hears, and He responds to His people. Now, the first deliverer is, is this man called Othniel, who we discover in verse nine is a relative of Caleb. Now, Caleb, you'll remember was the spy who, along with Joshua, wanted to press in and enter Canaan, even though the other ten spies were pessimistic about their chances of success. Caleb was also the man who, at 85 years of age, was still up for a fight. I don't know if there's anybody here who fits either of those categories. Uh, They're 85, or they're still up for a fight. But he's the man who, it was said of, that he served the Lord his God wholeheartedly. So Othniel came from great stock, so to speak. But having an impressive family tree doesn't mean you're going to pick up where they left off or that you will embrace or reflect similar values or resolve. But the two critical facts that we read in those verses about Othniel are these. That it was God who raised him up And it was the Spirit of the Lord who came upon him. In other words, who equipped him and empowered him for what he did. And one of the things that I think this is really saying to us is this, and we cannot miss this point. Salvation is from the Lord. Deliverance comes from God. And God alone. In fact, salvation belongs to our God. Not to anyone else irrespective of who they are and that phrase the spirit of the lord came upon him it turns up time and time again throughout the book now it isn't said of every judge but it is said of some of them Gideon and Samson are two other examples and it is a feature of the old testament where the spirit of the lord empowers certain people at certain times for certain purposes But one of the incredible and liberating truths of the Christian faith is that ever since Pentecost, ever since Jesus went back to be with his Father and the Spirit was poured out on all people, then every child of God who sits here this evening is indwelt and is empowered by this same Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord that came upon Othniel is now the Spirit of God who lives in every single one of us. belong to him and that is an amazing reality and therefore we can know and we need to know that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is what that it's at work within us the spirit of God is at work within us there is so much more we can do than Othniel ever did and as a direct result of being raised up by God and empowered by the Spirit, Othniel was able to overpower the king with a double-barreled name. And as a result, the land, that says, has peace for 40 years. Some translations will actually put it like this, that the land had rest. And a land that has peace and a land that has rest is surely always our heart's desire. In your mercy, Lord hear our prayers that we may live in a land that is at peace and is at rest and so the pattern is set but maybe the cycle has actually 5 steps step 1 Israelites mess up step 2 enemies oppress them step 3 cry out to God step 4 God raises a judge step 5 the land has peace and rest but 40 years into this we're back to step 1 look at verse 12 of chapter 3 once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But this time the characters change and the story and the specific details are much more graphic and intriguing. Now for us, reading verses uh, 12 to 30 will cause some sense of shock and surprise. But as one commentator says, for the Israelites, and you need to try to put yourself in their shoes, their sandals, for the Israelites telling or hearing this story was just something they loved to do. There was pure enjoyment, devastating humour, biting satire, sheer hilarity in this narrative. And so I'd like us to read it together. Now normally here at Windsor we stand for the public reading of God's word. We didn't do it for the first bit, we're going to do it for this bit because I know it's Sunday night and we're tired and all of that. So we stand for the public reading of God's word. We're picking up at verse 12 and we're going to read through. Again, some of you will know this story. It's, It's a classic Again, the people of Israel did what the Lord said was wrong. So the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power to defeat Israel because of the evil that Israel did. Eglon got the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. And then he attacked Israel and he took Jericho, the city of palm trees. So the people of Israel were ruled by Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. When the people cried to the Lord, he sent someone to save them. He was Ehud, son of Gerah from the people of Benjamin, who was left-handed. Israel sent Ehud to give Eglon, king of Moab, the payment he demanded, or the tribute, as some of the translations will say. Ehud made himself a sword with two edges, about 18 inches long, foot and a half, and he tied it to his right hip under his clothes. Ehud gave Eglon king of Moab the payment he demanded. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Not very politically correct. After he had given Eglon the payment, Ehud sent away the people who had carried it. And when he passed the statues near Gilgal, he turned round and said to Eglon, I have a secret message for you, King Eglon. The king said, be quiet. Then he sent all of his servants out of the room. Ehud went to King Eglon as he was sitting alone in the room above his summer palace. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king stood up from his chair, Ehud reached with his left hand, took out the sword that was tied to his right hip, and then he stabbed the sword deep into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in. And the blade came out his back. The king's fat covered the whole sword. So Ehud left the sword in Eglon. And then he went out of the room and he closed and he locked the doors behind him. And when the servants returned just after Ehud left, they found the doors of the room locked. So they thought the king was relieving himself. They waited for a long time. Finally, they became worried because he still had not opened the doors. So they got the key and they unlocked them and they saw their king lying dead on the floor. And while the servants were waiting, Ehud had escaped. He passed by the statues and he went to Sarah. And when he reached the mountains of Ephraim, he blew the trumpet, and the people of Israel heard it. And they went down from the hills with Ehud leading them. He said to them, "Follow me." The Lord has helped you to defeat your enemies, the Moabites. So Israel followed Ehud and captured the crossings of the Jordan River. They did not allow the Moabites to cross the Jordan River. Israel killed about ten thousand strong and able men from Moab. No one escaped. So that that day Moab was forced to be under the rule of Israel and there was peace in the land for twice as long this time. Eighty years. Okay, grab a seat. Now, one of the one of the big problems that people have with this story is that the person God raises up is an assassin. And he's a liar or At best, he's an out-and-out deceiver. I mean, the idea of saying, I have a secret message from the Lord for you wasn't exactly truthful. But what we've got to realise, and and this is is at one level difficult, I know this, but what we've got to realise is that the text makes it clear that God doesn't raise up an assassin, or a liar, or a murderer, but God raises up a deliverer. A saviour. And the focus of this story is not, why does God get himself mixed up with characters like Ehud? The focus of this story is that God delights to save his people who are in distress. Don't dwell on the problems this story creates. Instead, rejoice in the salvation God brings. I realise at one level that's easy to say. But really, there's no other way around. And the two characters in this story are quite distinctive. Ehud, the judge, was a lefty. Now, in our culture, that's not a problem. Or at least it shouldn't be. But in those days, being left-handed was seen as a sign of weakness. It was a major disadvantage. And that's actually reflected in the Hebrew text, where the word for left-handed literally means hindered in the right hand. And so why this detail? Why? Why a left-handed saviour? Was God indicating long before Paul wrote similar sentiments to the Corinthian church years later that it's God's strength that's made perfect in weakness? Maybe that's pushing it a bit too far. But why else is this aspect of who Ehud was recorded? The second main character is also relatively distinctive. King Eglon the oppressor is obese. Certainly by today's standards. But the other details in this story are also slightly uncomfortable to talk about in this context. The very fact that Eglon's servants thought he was at the toilet for so long that they got embarrassed waiting outside the toilet door is a very odd detail to include. And that's why when people read the book of Judges, they go, we we, we can't deal with this in this sort of context. And so as I said a couple of weeks ago, you will not hear that many sermons preached On these sort of sections from the Old Testament. But in the midst of all these intriguing revelations. Intriguing details. Ehud the judge escapes having killed Eglon. And he goes on to lead the Israelites as they strike down 10,000 kingless Moabites. And then as the text says the land had peace for 80 years. And that cycle is complete once again. But before we come to our final judge, let me make just one interesting comment that I came across during the week regarding this story. And you can sort of take this or leave this. God clearly doesn't arm us with 18-inch double-edged swords to fight our enemies. But we do know that God does arm us with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to help us engage in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves engaged in on a daily basis. I find that an interesting perspective on that. Finally for tonight, we come to Shamgar, whose story is condensed to one verse. Two sentences. Verse 31. Let's read them. I know that uh, Shamgar is also mentioned in chapter 5, but that is only to tell us that when he was around, roads were abandoned and people travelled By winding paths. That's all it says. But here's what verse 31 says. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. Now, although the details here are scant, to say the least, If ever there was an unlikely judge, Shamgar fits that bill. The contrast between him and the first judge, Othniel, in terms of pedigree and background are startling. Shamgar definitely didn't come from a positive Christian environment. By any stretch of the imagination, there were no Caleb's in Shamgar's family tree. To start with, Shamgar is recognised as a non-Israelite name. And then his father, who was called Anath, can mean one of two things. Either that refers to where he was from, but most commentators would say that that means he was named after a Canaanite goddess. Now, although Shamgar's family probably were Hebrews, it's generally thought that they had become so compromised That what they had done was they had adopted the ways and the habits of the surrounding culture. Therefore, they took on the surrounding culture's names and identity. And the bottom line in all of this is, Shamgar is such an unlikely judge. But all that for me reveals is this important truth. That when it comes to God accomplishing his purposes, there are no stereotype servants. People from diverse and radically different backgrounds are used by God. And within the Christian church there has always been a mixture of off-nails and shamgars. There have been those born and bred within a church context, those who have been influenced by a godly family, a God-fearing family. And then there are those who find themselves in the church who have had a very different experience, a very different upbringing, a very different environment in which to be influenced in. And irrespective of where we come from, God chooses to use us he will but the key in terms of uh, shamgar's weapon of choice it's an ox goad and one of the things that you discover as you read judges is that god's instruments of deliverance are varied they're an odd collection of tools and so from shamgar's eight foot long pointy stick to ehud's 18 inch double-edged sword to Samson's jawbone, or at least his donkey's jawbone, to Gideon's horns and torches, to a woman's millstone in chapter 9. Instruments of deliverance. Varied instruments of deliverance. But the key phrase in this really short story is that final one. And here it is again. He too saved Israel. Or to be more accurate, God saved Israel via this third judge. Because as I said earlier, salvation belongs to our God. And we're going to sing that in a moment. But as you look at this period in history, and this period in history stretches 300 plus years. And as you think about this cycle that's going to keep being repeated over and over again, you can't help but be struck by the patience and the love and the faithfulness of God. Why? didn't God walk away why didn't he walk away before Othniel never mind after Shamgar and what we discover and what we meet here to celebrate is a God who delights to deliver people even people who find themselves in a mess if salvation was up to us I doubt if anyone would be saved But because salvation belongs to our God, he reaches down in love and rescues people in the midst of the mess. And for that, we say thank you and we worship. Let's stand together as we close. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and onto the Lamb. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honour and power and strength be to our God.